Well, city officials hadn't expected Governor David Ige to expend the COVID emergency orders for the state on Friday, and it made announcements warning motorists whose driver's licenses were set to expire at midnight tonight about potential fines and the potential need to retake the written and road tests. Ige's last-minute decision gives drivers a reprieve, but the city is still encouraging everyone affected not to put off renewing their license. We talked to Nola Miyasaki, director of the city's Office of Consumer Services, about uh, uh, why you shouldn't wait. Anyone who has an expired driver's license will have to start all over and take the written test and take the road test as if they never had a license. So it's going to be pretty humbug. So that, <laughs> Right, exactly. So that's why if, for those people that intend to renew their license and are holding an expired license, it's really important to get in as soon as possible to avoid any fees and to avoid ultimately having to retake the driver's license test. And when we last talked, I guess it was earlier this summer, I know you folks were trying different things, trying to get through this backlog that had just been building, you know, by extending the hours at the satellite city halls. I think you even opened on Saturdays. We've been preparing. We've done our best to get rid of the backlog that came over from 2020. And we've managed to bring that down. And we're, we're really prepared for any kind of surge that's going to come in. We have maximized our counter availability. We staffed up all of our driver license locations as much as possible. And um, we've got extended hours during the week for the driver's license centers and our satellite city halls. We have Saturdays, full days for the satellite city halls that do driver license renewals. In addition, we also have walk-in standby appointments. For those that can't get a LOHOQ appointment or aren't able to get on a computer to make an appointment, they can do they can walk in and, and wait, and usually we're able to accommodate everyone. There's no guarantees on the walk-ins that don't have appointments, but we are, have been able to accommodate almost everyone on a walk-in basis as well. And for folks who aren't familiar with the Aloha Q system, uh, explain how that works. If they go on alohaq.org, O-R-G, um, they basically look for the, the earliest appointment available, and it will send them to a particular location that's able to either to renew their driver's license or their state ID. When we talked, though, this summer, I know that there was that tremendous backlog. So, so what's the wait period at this point? Right now, there are available appointments on Aloha Q. So there should be no wait at all. I mean, much more than a couple days. Within a week, people should be able to get an appointment on Aloha Q. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yes, and because we've done such a good job on bringing the backlog down, and because we've opened up more Aloha Q appointments and have extended hours, that's been the key. The one thing that, you know, we, we know there's going to be a rush and the appointments are going to start filling up. The one thing that we want to let people know is that we open up appointments for the next day in the afternoon. So depending on cancellations, on our confirmation of our staffing counters, the, the, the different locations will open up certain kinds of appointments the day before beginning at 3 p.m. So for people that aren't able to get something close in an appointment, they can look every day. They should get on the, the alohaq.org uh, website and look for appointments starting in the afternoon for the next day. So that's how we're able to, you know, we've been able to accommodate almost everyone as, as needed basis. What was the snapshot back then? What was the backlog? Well, at the beginning of the year, say January, we were about 228,000. 
And in the summer, I think it might have gone down to 163,000 or something like that by the middle or, you know, in the last one or two months. We've really gotten down. We've probably processed more than 100,000 in the first, say, nine months of the year. But most of that processing has come, if you recall, uh, at the beginning of the year, we were still close to walk-in traffic. They were still taking only Aloha Q appointments, and it was very low traffic due to the COVID-19 cautions. When the city went to Tier 2 and 3 and 4, we gradually started opening up. So we started opening up more counters, taking more Aloha Q appointments, and then walk-in traffic. Satellite City Hall does express window transactions, which actually allows them to do more driver license and motor vehicle transactions on Aloha Queue. So we did a number of things. We opened up the extended hours. So we've done a number of things as the city has opened up to allow more traffic and allow us to do more transactions and get rid of this backlog. We think that there's about thirty to 50000 from 2020 through now that probably are, are um, of the driver's licenses and um, an equal number of state IDs that are expired and haven't been renewed. So, you know, going forward with the transactions that are going to come in that are going to be up for renewal, we think we can manage um, everything going into the end of the year and hopefully not get backlogged again and hopefully be able to stay open at the level that we're, we're at. Well, kudos to your staff for knocking down that backlog. You know, I remember the problem, part of the problem were all the no-shows, right? You know, Catherine, we still have a no-show problem, but we've been able to offset that no-show problem with walk-ins, and that's why we opened up to walk-ins. We know that there's a limited number of Aloha Q appointments. No matter how many more appointments we have, we only have so many, right? So when we opened up more Aloha Q appointments, we still have no-shows, but we've offset them with the walk-ins, and that's worked really well for us. Yeah, I know someone who uh, booked an appointment, and it was, you know, back in the summer, and their first slot was in November, but they went down on one of those days and waited and, and uh, were able to get it lickety-split, so uh, they were very yeah. pleased. Well, I'm glad to hear that, yeah. The staff has done a great job, and they've stayed open, you know, throughout the the various ups and downs of COVID-19. With the city's mandate for vaccinations for all employees, we feel that we're able to provide the public with a very, um, relatively very safe environment. Almost all the staff at customer services department is vaccinated and between the social distancing and the mask requirement, we, we feel that we're able to provide a safe environment for everyone to come in and get their credentials renewed. Right, you just gotta make sure you've got the right documents and be ready there uh, when you do get in. Exactly. And that was Nola Miyasaki, director of the city's Office of Con- uh, Customer Service, urging those drivers with expired licenses not to put off renewing. The city says some 50,000 motorists on Oahu have licenses that uh, were to expire in 2020. But here's the deal. During October, November, and December, about 6,000 drivers each month have their licenses expiring, so you'll be up against those residents as, as well. So make an appointment while you can. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. You know, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Data published by the Hawaii Department of Health says 
13% of our uh, adults in our state report experiencing intimate partner violence at some point in their lives. And according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, uh, domestic violence programs in Hawaii serve over 500 victims on a daily basis. The conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with Robert Boyack from Child and Family Service to talk about the recent rise in cases in our islands. Do you attribute that to circumstances surrounding the pandemic, or are there other factors you believe have contributed to that increase? So during the pandemic, when we were locked down, our calls to our crisis hotline had dropped about 24%. A lot of that is attributed to survivors not having an opportunity to make those phone calls to the crisis hotline. And as the state started to reopen, we saw a significant increase in our calls. We also saw a significant increase in calls from the hospital or calls from victims who were previously admitted into the emergency room. That went up to about 34% from the previous year. So what the story tells us is that the abuse has gotten significantly more volatile and it, ha- it was happening. It's just that the opportunity wasn't there for them to escape. And now that we have reopened, you know, we're seeing our numbers increasing significantly. For those of us on the outside, what signs do we look for? What are the red flags? So you want to look for signs of where people are being becoming recluse. They're pulling away from friends or pulling away from family members. They're wearing clothing that is not does not match the weather, like they'll be wearing long sleeve shirts or jackets, you know, and that's to cover up some of the bruising. You'll be looking for signs where they get involved very quickly into a relationship where all their time is spent on that relationship. So they are always with the potential batterer. You also look for things that they enjoy doing. They stop doing those things, whether it's you know going to family picnics or going to the beach, you know, stuff where that social gathering, they've stopped doing that. And you'll also want to look at some of the body language that they may be displaying. Like if they are in a community setting, they will be looking at the abuser for signs of approval or making sure that they're not doing anything to kind of upset the abuser. So they'll be constantly looking for reassurance from that, from the abuser. What more can the public do or what more can the pe- can people outside do to help the victim? I imagine that sometimes the victim doesn't feel they can be helped. When we see these red flags, what should we do? Should we talk directly to the victim or should we try to talk to a family member or go straight to services like Child and Family Service? We as a society need to make this our kuleano. We have to get involved. We have to be be there for them. You know, you might be the only lifeline that person has. You have to remember that these survivors sometimes have gone through years of trauma in their lives. They're suffering from depression, from anxiety, this hopelessness. There may be some discouragement and low self-worth. So, you know, just you being there for them and letting them know 
that you're available no matter what. And that could be simple as picking up the phone and telling them that you're going to Foodland, you know, if do you want me to pick up anything for you or do you want me to take you somewhere? Whatever routine that they may have, it may be an opportunity for you to join them in that routine. And when they do reach out to you, you, you want to listen. You don't want to cast any blame. You don't want to blame the batterer as well because you don't know where they are in that relationship. You know, sometimes they may not be ready to leave but they just need someone to, you know, to talk to, someone to listen to them. And, and it's really important that you, you, know, you give them that space. And when they are ready to leave, you could be that lifeline for them. You could offer things like um, holding all the important documents. Because a lot of women that come into our shelter, they come in with nothing but like no ID, no driver's license, nothing at all. So it, it might be a good idea for you to hold on to those important documents for them so that when they do leave, you know, they have access to those documents. You could have a change of clothes for them. Just giving them the, the space and the opportunity to leave will be a significant uh, impact to them. In my understanding, the process of a victim leaving a violent or abusive relationship is a process. Is it important for people to understand that it's not going to happen right away, that it's going to take some time for victims to come to the point where they're ready to leave? So it it is a process, and sometimes it could be a very long process. The average is about seven to nine times that they would come in shelter and go back to the abuser so everybody has their own story everybody has their own process and it's it's important as a society to recognize that and have them take ownership of that process and validate that process with them and we just ask that you be patient with that process you know i'm sure it's difficult when you see a loved one going through this you have to remember that they have been in a relation, this relationship for years and they have been battered for years and years. You can't expect for you to jump in and say, you know, you have to leave and have things change right away. Human beings don't do well with changes. I just have to stress that you just have to be patient because you're not going to, it's not going to change overnight. Yeah. And it's, and it's not about us too, right? It's not right. about us being the hero. It's about helping the victim feel supported in a way that they can come to that decision on their own. For those who are in a situation where they are the victim of a domestic violence situation or abusive relationship, what resources are available to them? What should they do? We have a domestic violence crisis hotline, which is 808-841-0822. That's available 24-7. They could call that hotline and they could get referrals even if it's just to talk to someone there, you know, we have staff that are trained to take those crisis calls. Not everyone wants to come into a shelter, especially now with this COVID and this new virus, because, you know, shelter living is community living. So there's some apprehension towards that. So a lot of them would seek safe spaces from from family members or friends who will give them that opportunity where they could be safe in, in, in their in residential homes. 
Child and Family Service has domestic violence programs that work in community. So even if they don't, even if they're not in a shelter, but they want support groups, individual counseling, if they want advocacy or case management, we have DV programs that could work with them in the community too as well. So I would just encourage them to call the crisis hotline and, and access those resources. We probably don't think about this or talk about this much and understandably so, they're not the victim, but for the abuser, what can they do if they realize what they're doing is wrong and want to stop but don't know how? At Child and Family Service, we do have a, a batterers intervention program that works with the batterers. We, we provide groups for them. We have groups in the morning and in the evenings, Monday through Saturday. Very high percentage of them, probably anywhere between 92 to 95% of them, have been raised in family settings with extreme domestic violence. And they themselves are either subjected to child abuse or just you know witnessing domestic violence. So a lot of them come in and they don't know how to express their emotions. They don't know how to deal with what maybe they're going through at that time. And that the only way they know to do it is just to lash out. So that is what we see quite a bit in our groups. So it's a behavior that they have to change and we have to give them the, the tools to do that and, and give them that support. And that is what those groups do. Thank you so much for your time today, Robert. Thank you for the opportunity. That was Child and Family Service Program Administrator Robert Boyack talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. We'll have links to information about resources available for victims of domestic violence on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Mid-Pacific Institute, committed to sparking creativity and unlocking student potential with a virtual pre-K to elementary school open house October 16th, 9 to 11 a.m. Registration at midpac.edu. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share how astronomers will get fresh eyes on the planet Mercury for the first time. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips with us, and he's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Venus can be seen in the west shortly after sunset, with Jupiter and Saturn visible in the southern and eastern skies. This week, the moon is passing through its new moon phase, and as such, conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And this week, we have an exciting update on a mission to Mercury. Yeah, the planet Mercury may be the smallest member of our solar family. The planet itself is less than 5,000 miles in diameter and has no atmosphere to speak of, and it is blasted by solar radiation. Mercury rarely gets any love from interplanetary missions, but that is about to change. The joint Japanese-European spacecraft, BepiColombo, has been speeding towards our small solar neighbor and is about to make the first of a series of flybys that will bring fresh eyes to this fascinating little world. And Chris, is Bepi going to be 
settling into orbit around Mercury? Eventually, it will, and it will allow its full suite of scientific instruments to study the planet. First, though, it needs to shed some speed, and this flyby will be the first of six flybys that will allow the craft to enter a stable orbit. And talk a little bit more about the mission and some of the stuff they're hoping to learn. Well, Bepi is an orbital geologist and will study the surface in a level of detail that no other spacecraft has ever done. This will allow us to gain insight into the geological processes that may or may not be active on this tiny world, including features that are known as hollows in the crust of the planet. Although this is still nine years out. Wow, nine years. It's going to be a long time. Let's hope there's even a stargazer in the future to cover this topic. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the, the timeline of that, why it takes so long. Well, the reason it takes so long is the sun. When you travel sunward from an outer planet, such as the Earth, you have to constantly break against the gravitational pull of our giant star. Otherwise, you'd speed up and fly right on by your target, or even worse, end up plowing into the sun itself, which would be bad. Because Bepi doesn't have an infinite fuel supply for braking burns, it has to use gravity-assisted deceleration to slow it down, which basically means using planetary flybys to shed velocity. When it does slow down enough, though, to enter a stable orbit, we can expect to see a fascinating flurry of science from Mercury and see this planet like we've never seen it before. Christopher Phillips, another fascinating Stargazer report. Thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. You know, we have a regular segment uh, called Reality Check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Today we're featuring a business reporter, Stuart Yurton. He has a story about the banana business. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So what got you poking around on the bananas? Uh, well, this came about. I was uh, meeting with the folks at Mana Up, the business accelerator, and uh, they put me in touch with one of their companies they're working with to grow this company, Banan, which makes a frozen uh, dessert out of uh, bananas. So they basically freeze the bananas and turn them into this soft-serve ice cream type uh uh, thing and then they have toppings and all that. It's a healthy alternative to ice cream. And uh, one of the founders, uh, Matt Hong, mentioned that oh, uh, we our banana supply went away. And we got to talking, and he said, but we have this young guy we're working with, uh, Gabe Sachter Smith, also known as Banana Gabe. And Banana Gabe has this uh, 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 project underway to help build back Hawaii's banana industry. So I thought, well, let me talk to Banana Gabe and see what's up. Well, now this banana, so they were basically chugging along. I mean, I've seen their their uh, store in Waikiki and Kapahulu, and and, uh, and then the pandemic hit, and what, the bananas dried up? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Sugarland Farms, one of the big farms here, um, was producing a lot of the types of bananas that uh, Banan use. These the Cavendish bananas. These are the standard bananas you see at the grocery store. Not the apple bananas, but the standard big, uh, like Chiquita-style bananas that you see. Um, Banan needs those because they work best with the machines. 
Larry Jaths of Sugarland was growing them. When the tourism industry dried up, uh, there wasn't a big demand for those, at least uh, from Jeff's customers, that the hotels and cruise ships were buying a lot of his bananas, and he had no reason to produce the Cavendish bananas anymore, so he just cut the cut down the crop. So basically, though, this local farmer would, had some bananas to sell then. Well, yes. He had actually uh, touched base with... Uh, Banan years before and was starting a nursery. And uh, Banan said, yeah, well, we'll finance your nursery and here's some money and just pay us back when you can and with bananas. And they had this handshake deal and that had been, like I said, years before. And then suddenly um, Banan's uh, banana supply dries up and then and, and Banana Gabe's uh, crops were starting ma- to mature, so he was able to provide them with bananas. Wow, so that's great timing. <laughs> yes. And, and so then this local farmer is producing the bananas that uh, Banan needs. Yes, he's producing some of them, but not all of them. And again, Banan has this idea of farm to table. That was all part of their mission. And they're still having to import bananas, though, because um, uh, Banana Gabe just can't produce enough. Uh, he's trying to, and he's gearing up, and he has a lot of work going on. They have uh, land. They have two five-acre uh, parcels and a new 30-acre parcel that they're starting to cultivate. But it's a lot of work. And as we've learned from a lot of comments, we have excellent comments from our readers, um, a lot of them professional and uh, amateur banana growers who have a lot of insight into this, who are telling us, you know, this is really hard. And what, what Gabe is trying to do is very hard. Well, we often hear a lot about bunchy top disease. So, you know, that's something that the farmers have to figure out how to get around. Yeah, so one of the ideas is that he, he's trying to do this um, not so much for Banan, but generally for Hawaii. He has, uh, Gabe has this idea that if he grows this dwarf, uh, dwarf um, Iholena banana, um, he can it, it grows fast, it produces fruit fast, and it can sort of beat Bunchy Top. Ah, so okay. <laughs> that's kind of the idea that it'll produce things um, – fast enough that uh, the, they won't get bunchy top. All right. Out, outpaced bunchy top. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Association of Independent Schools with the Find a School search tool for families featuring more than 100 private schools accepting applications throughout the current school year. HAIS.US. One of the things we feature regularly is a segment that covers what's growing in our gardens. We revisit a recent piece focusing on growing fresh garlic. According to the Farmer's Almanac, October is a good time to start planting garlic if you live on the continent. Here in Hawaii, our temperate climate is a huge barrier to growing fresh garlic in the islands, but that might not be for long. University of Hawaii agricultural researcher Jensen Ueda has been studying ways for local farmers to successfully produce the savory cloves. Anyone for garlic ice cream? Well, the conversation's Lillian Song sat down with Ueda to talk about the economics of taking local garlic to market. I knew that the majority of garlic being consumed in Hawaii was imported from California and China. So there's a potential market that could be tapped into if we can work on the economics. 
as far as garlic production in Hawaii. And maybe that's not the same market that we compete with. We work with more of the higher-end markets and develop value-added products to compete with that higher-end market versus the wholesale market. Break that down for me. What stops people from being able to grow garlic in Hawaii? For the most part, it's a seasonal thing. Because we have such short days in Hawaii, we don't have the temperate climate like the normal garlic growing areas have. We have to manipulate the garlic seed prior to planting to increase bulb size. So that manipulation is called vernalization. So naturally, garlic is planted before the winter frost. And that winter frost basically breaks dormancy on the garlic. And then as garlic comes into the spring, it's released from that dormancy and then allowed to germinate through the snow or in some cases, there's no snow. It naturally gets that, that chill period during the winter. Well, in Hawaii, we don't have that chill period that the U.S. mainland has. So we have to basically put the bulbs into a refrigerator during that period to mimic that winter frost. And then we can plant in the spring. Based on their characteristics, they're classified as different types of garlic. I guess there's two categories, hardneck versus softneck. Hardnecks typically have a flower stem that gives it that hard neck structure versus soft necks typically don't have that. And then within those two major groups, you have a few subtypes. The hard necks seem to be more adapted to the warmer tropical climate. So the majority of the varieties we selected, the Creole, Asiatic, Turban types, porcelain, purple stripes, and the recambles fall into that hard neck category. But I did include some of the soft neck types, which typically are more in line with the U.S. mainland varieties. Like the long-storing, long-shelf-life type varieties are more of the soft-neck types. So what we um, would find in the grocery stores would most likely be a soft-neck garlic. Yes, and it, when you rip open the garlic, you won't typically see a stem in the center of the whirl. Typically how you can tell it's a soft-neck. And because the hard-necks typically have a shorter shelf-life, they're sold more locally. So You'd find most of them probably in like an Oregon, Washington, California market, like farmer's market versus a wholesale type of market. But because of the shelf life characteristic that to ship garlic to Hawaii, it's typically on a boat. So it's taking a long period. So that shelf life is brought down significantly mm-hmm. just due to transportation. Mm-hmm. But if you're growing it on the U.S. mainland, it's a lot easier to get it from the farm to the market. So you started these trials five years ago, sharing the research with growers, funding the project through grants. And what have you learned? Garlic can be grown here. There's a potential for a higher-end, high-value market for local garlic in Hawaii. I don't think that we're going to compete with China and California for the wholesale market. So for production, for producers in Hawaii, I don't think you should try and import replacement those markets, but getting into farmer's markets where higher value can take place for fresh product or developing products that have higher value, so like garlic chili oil doesn't require a lot of product, but you can market it as a Hawaii-grown product and that value would be significantly increased. We've been working with the KCC Culinary Innovation Center with Dr. Lauren Tamamoto. So she's been our food scientist on this particular project. She's been on the grant since we started with Department of Ag. Her and her students at the KCC Culinary Innovation Center 
have been partnering with us to come up with different value-added products. So over the last four or five years, we've been able to make stuff like black garlic. Black garlic can be higher value if marketed correctly. Basically, it's a fermented garlic product, and it gives that garlic a sweeter, savory flavor instead of that spicy, pungent flavor. And we're using that that flavoring in different things. Um, ice cream was one of them, and it's a very interesting flavor. No way, ice cream.、Uh, yeah, black garlic ice cream. I was fooling around with stuff like pizza, so slicing it up and flavoring pizza with the black garlic, like a roasted chicken pizza that you just want to add flavoring. You can put slices of black garlic on top.、Um, pickled garlic is another option, like girankil, but I'm not sure if that has a high enough value. To justify it versus the black garlic, I think you can ask for up to fifteen dollars a pound to twenty dollars a pound for that particular product if marketed correctly. So you're assisting growers develop a method to grow garlic in Hawaii, and economically speaking, best to target that consumer who's who's willing to pay extra for a fresh garlic grown in Hawaii. And from the last few years, we've been able to increase the number of Garlic growers in Hawaii. I think we've introduced at least six to seven new farmers, and this last year was their first harvest. And one of the farmers on Maui was able to produce, I think, 900 pounds this year of garlic, marketing at six or seven dollars a pound, which is way higher than you would see a California garlic in the market. And this coming year, they're considering expanding their production. To meet their market demand, and I think they're only selling it to a few locations. Would these farms be sourcing straight to restaurants? Right now, that's that's been my recommendation. So that's probably where they're at now is direct to restaurants, basically right after harvest.、Uh, restaurants can hang on to this garlic for a while. That's why, so they can bulk order it if they have their refrigerator space、mm-hmm. to take that whole nine hundred pounds and use that throughout the year. Should last within the refrigerator for four to six months. Okay, therefore, not really making it into the public market. What is the flavor of the local garlic? To me, it's not as pungent. Even the color and texture, to me, it's a lot whiter, a lot cleaner feeling to me than mainland garlic. I've dropped a few off at different chefs to see what they think. A few have gone to the Culinary Innovation Center as well to taste it. When I've dropped off some garlic and I got some opinions, and most of them have said that they don't—it's not what they typically get from their vendors, as far as color, flavor, and each variety has its own characteristics. So, if we can get more success with different varieties, I think we can hopefully expose Hawaii to the different eating qualities of garlic, the different flavor profiles. I guess you could say. Similar to like cupping coffee from different locations, you can get different garlics that have different aromas, different flavors. But I don't think we're there yet as an industry. I think we're just figuring out how to grow it and can we keep it going consistently at this point. And、um, there's room for expansion. Okay, and because you're working with the Department of Ag, this right now is. Mainly for farmers who are doing bigger crop production. What if it were like a small, just backyard farmer of、uh, somebody who wants to grow garlic? Is that something that's possible? Yeah, it's the same 
concepts just on a smaller scale. So mm-hmm. um, it would be the same thing. You could go to the market and your leftover garlic in October, you're not going to eat it, throw it in the refrigerator, store it till November, December, and then plant it in a pot or your garden or wherever you have room available. And if you have the space, go for it and grow your own because fresh garlic is, in my opinion, amazing compared to store-bought garlic. So give it a chance. Hmm. From seed to table, you handle a lot of garlic. How do you prepare garlic? How do you like eating garlic? I like to chop it up and pan fry it, crisp it up, and then I buy chili oil, mix it with the chili oil, kind of infuse it into the chili oil, and mix a little bit of salt and pepper into that. And then I use that and mix it with a bunch of different things. I put it on spam musubis in between the spam and the rice. If I make like a chicken salad sandwich, I'll mix that in the chicken salad with the mayo to give it some flavor and some spice. Other than that, I like putting it in prime ribs whole or dicing it up and mixing it in fried rice. Those are my kind of go-tos with, with garlic. Thank you, Jensen. Now I'm super hungry. Ah, that sounds so good. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> me too. Me three. <laughs> so be on the lookout for locally grown garlic at a market near you. Affectionately referred to as the stinking rose, the pungent cloves are a good insect repellent in the garden as well as a basic staple in the pantry for island cooks. And that wraps it up for today's show. Tomorrow we plan to hear from uh, the uh, medical examiner's office here in Honolulu about the impact of recent COVID deaths on the city morgue. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.